Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. I really appreciate the worship this morning because it points to devotion to our Lord and what we sang kind of brings up the idea of loyalty. To be honest with you, I'm really, really big on loyalty as a virtue. And more importantly than my view on it, God is. Loyalty, in case you don't know or don't remember the definition, it's just a, it's a, it's a term that signifies a person's devotion, again, uh, an attachment to a particular thing or person or a group of people like a local church, or maybe even an ideal, a duty, or a cause that you'll be faithful to. You'll never let go no matter what. And so I respect people that are loyal, but to the right things, okay? Uh, There were Nazi soldiers that were really loyal to Hitler and the Third Reich, like there were terrorists loyal to bin Laden, and that's not a good form of loyalty. Wouldn't want you to be loyal to that. But you know righteous loyalty when you see it. Uh, I'll give you five examples, loyal examples of uh, people, creatures we can relate to. Number one, here's a good example of loyalty, a dog that sticks by its owner all the time. Can you relate to that? Because my dog does, okay? He's loyal. Uh, Secondly, a person that always defends their family and speaks well of them at all times. I think that's loyalty. Third, yeah, this is kind of rare, an employee that sticks with a company for a long time and feels an allegiance to them and vice versa. That's pretty rare. Fourth, example of loyalty, a, a married couple. They stay faithful to one another throughout their entire lives. And fifth, this is not an exhaustive list, but another example of loyalty, a husband or wife that cares for their spouse through an illness. I think you really have to respect that, don't you? I've seen like one spouse caring for the other that has maybe like Alzheimer's. So difficult a ministry and they stay with them through thick and thin and sacrifice all. I think that's done out of loyalty, right? It means doing hard things for the right reasons. Out of love, I think Ruth, I think of Ruth in the Old Testament as another example of that biblically. You know, death impacted her family. Her husband she lost, mother-in-law loses her sons. She's going to move back home and even suggest, hey, just we'll split apart. You're done. And Ruth's reaction was, from the scripture, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. From where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. That's loyalty. Faithfulness. The commitment that you make, like God makes to never leave nor forsake us, right? And I like the fact you can count on people that are loyal. They'll be there through thick and thin, you know? And then you have, of course, in contrast, disloyal people. They say one thing, do another. Or in the extreme, what we would call in the religious vernacular, apostates. You've heard that word here before. It's a big word. It's a theological word. It's good to know it. And it describes a person that at one time confesses faith in Jesus Christ 
and later, for whatever reason, they reject him, and they reject that faith. And in fact, in church, there's been like a rash of people that look like that, and there's a term for them now calling them exvangelical, instead of evangelical, exvangelical. Uh, you see that a lot among the celebrity Christians. They fall from grace, they fall from the faith, and what they'd say is they're deconstructing they're breaking down, rebuilding their faith or their beliefs to kind of fit some felt needs or attitudes or circumstances in their life that have changed. Really, to get to the point, what they don't want to believe is the plain face value teaching of the Bible anymore. So an apostate is a person that denies and defects from the faith that they once claimed. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us now to remove distractions again from us in our devotion to you to see and hear what the Spirit would have for us today and how this message applies to us and that you would help us make application of it to each one of our lives individually, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in this text, you're going to see the drama of that sort of thing, of what an apostate does and why. In fact, two out of the next three messages from this series, including today, are really super important if you're looking for assurance of faith. You're looking for eternal security, which some Christians struggle with. And that's really based on two-way loyalty. So these two messages are going to help you really see if you're truly in the faith or not, in a sense. And this is coming at a critical point in the transition of the Passover evening of the Holy Week and in the life and ministry of Jesus because he's just finished the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, it'll be known as. It was a Passover meal in the upper room. He's taught them about the Holy Spirit and he's walked with them from Jerusalem out of the walled city up the Mount of Olives. They've entered the Garden of Gethsemane. He's prayed for what is to come, for the will of his Father to be done. He's prayed for his disciples, and he's prayed for the church that's going to be born. And what is to come, what is that, is the fulfillment of passion prophecies. Judas' betrayal after midnight Thursday is now going to set in motion a rapid-fire series of events that are going to culminate in the crucifixion of Christ. Later that same Friday, in just a matter of hours, you're going to see Jesus will be arrested, stand trial before multiple officials, the Jewish leaders, the Roman governor Pilate, Herod Antipas, the uh, head over Galilee. And after being sentenced to death, he'll be tortured by Roman soldiers, paraded through the streets to Golgotha. He's going to be executed, having been charged king of the Jews, by being nailed to a wooden cross. By about 3 o'clock that afternoon, the Son of God would be dead having completed his atoning work as the one true Passover lamb who came to forgive and save sinners. And all that starts right here with this apostasy and arrest. And so we'll break it down in three ways. We're going to look at the capture there, and then the complaint that's made in it, and then the cowardice that's displayed really by all the parties. And the big takeaway for you and me today is to check out how loyal are we to Jesus? So let's think about that as we hear this. Let's start with this capture. 
that starts in verse 43, goes to 46. And again, immediately while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So as the Lord's been praying to his Father in heaven, and he's called for prayer from the disciples, he's rebuked that inner core trio on need, their need to help him in prayer, Judas has predicted and prophesied, he comes on the scene with quite a crowd to the garden. They were representatives of the Sanhedrin. You got scribes, you got priests, you got a good-sized contingent of guards made up apparently of the Jewish temple guards, and then you got a lot of Roman soldiers there too. So they all have an agenda. What is it for? Well, it's to capture Christ. They want to arrest him. They want to take him to a trial before the chief priests and the rest of the Sanhedrin in order to condemn him. And by the way, his guilt and the sentence, that's been predetermined by these guys. We know that in advance. That's part of the conspiracy we've talked about. And then they would take him to Pilate and work out that part of the plan with Rome. And the conspiracy, of course, is what we know. They want to murder Jesus Christ. The Jews want to be rid of him. We know the why, right? He was in competition for the authority over and the affection of the people of Israel. And so the religious leaders were intimidated by him. They hated him. They wanted him dead, out of the way. They want to keep their positions of power and prosperity. They want to keep the status quo in order. So pride and their wicked hearts are even preventing them from seeing, seriously considering, the fact that he might be actually who he walked and talked like, which is the Messiah. And furthermore, this is the time of the Passover, the high, highest of holy days for the Jews. So tens of thousands of, Jew, of Jewish pilgrims are there from all over the country in Jerusalem. And so they need to carry out this conspiracy in secret, right? Hidden. This is done in the middle of the night, what a skeptic would call a kangaroo court. It's kind of like a bogus trial that would look like it was official, but it was set up at a time in the middle of the night where there were few witnesses. First thing they have to do is capture Christ. So we go on. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I kiss, I will kiss, is the man. Seize him and led, lead him away under guard. So Judas, the traitor, he's got this prearranged signal with the authorities that would identify Jesus from the rest of the crowd, okay? And you might find that interesting. I did for a couple of reasons. First, if Jesus is as popular and well-known as he is at this point in time, would, he, would you really need a signal or a sign to pick him out of a crowd? I mean, why, why would that be? Well, this is so important. This is why it's important to read and know the parallel gospel passages and accounts because it helps you fill in some gaps here. John's account tells us that Judas procured, hired out a band of soldiers as well as the other authorities. And listen to this. They went with lanterns and torches and weapons. So this is a band of soldiers. It's big. They called it in those days a cohort. A cohort was about 600 men. That's about a tenth of a legion of soldiers. So they're, it looks like they're ready for anything. And this is all happening overnight Thursday into the pre-dawn hours, what we call Good Friday, 
So other than the light of a full moon that night, it is pitch dark. It's pitch black. So they got to find a way to identify and arrest this man. Why did Jesus then greet the Lord with a kiss of all kinds of identifications? Well, you may be able to relate to this. A kiss was a common greeting between people at that time. They didn't do the handshake thing. We do the fist bump thing today. They don't know about that. They don't do that. Um, a kiss was a cultural act of affection and a greeting. Like it is today still in Europe, is today among most Hispanics that I know, right? In fact, you're going to remember Paul toward the end of the book of Romans, he tells the church, greet one another with a holy kiss. He does. That means it's a, it's a greeting of a sense of appropriate, pure Christian affection. All right? And when he came, Judas, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. Wow. And then they laid hands on him and they seized him or arrested him. What kind of a blasphemous act is this? Judas goes up to the Lord and he begins kissing him and yells out to the crowd, Teacher! And I said he began to kiss him because the Greek word translated there is kiss is very interesting. It's an intensive compound form of the word that's in verse 44. And that could mean a prolonged kiss. Or it could lead to being multiple kisses, repeated kisses on the cheek. You might even say Judas kissed him several times, which is very strange. And you might imagine what is going through Judas's mind to drive him to do such a wicked and deceitful thing as this. Well, here's food for thought. It's really relevant to us today. Judas Iscariot may not have even been convicted that Jesus is the Messiah because he just referred to him and always in the scripture as rabbi or teacher. He never once called him Lord or Master, Messiah. Okay? False doctrine is a big time sign of many cases of apostasy. Okay? Unlike the other disciples that called Jesus Lord or Master, Judas never used that title, which means he never acknowledged Jesus to be anything more than a teacher, apparently. And remember, the devil has entered Judas by this time. Luke told us that. That's another sign of apostasy, demonic influence. Satan breeds apostates, those that profess faith and then reject it, okay? In fact, here's another frightening parallel to Judas, that even people that call Jesus Lord. If you turn to Matthew's Gospel in the seventh chapter, and it's a very familiar text to us in Matthew 7 from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a frightening one because it impacts so many people. Jesus is speaking and talking about a tree and its fruit, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
That is a frightening text because it really reveals clearly false believers, apostates, people that professed that they knew Jesus, professed the name of Jesus, but did not possess the Holy Spirit. That leads us to know that they're in Christ. Judas was an unredeemed, unsaved follower of Christ up until the events of this evening. Okay, If you fail to recognize Jesus as God incarnate, and therefore he's the only one that can provide forgiveness for sins, salvation eternally, if you fail to obey him in his word and you have no desire to, you are going to be subject to apostasy and to his wrath and judgment. And here's another angle on this betrayal. Proverbs 27, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and then many or profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And that means that a real faithful friend may wound you, may wound your ego with a loving, necessary rebuke because they really love you and care for you, and they tell you something that you need to hear for your own good. So you can trust that. But this kind of affection we see here, it's just false flattery. Because he's not telling the G Jesus the truth as to why he's there. Jesus knows in advance. Judas isn't saying. So, I mean, just think about it. Again, you come face to face with the Lord, the God of creation, who loved him, taught him, cared for him for about three years. And then this apostate throws him under the bus for everyone to see and hear. And Judas betrays this man, the Lord, with a kiss, kisses for money. He literally prostituted himself. This is a seal of his apostasy. And so if anyone had doubts up to now who the traitor was going to be, well, this erases all doubts, obviously. I mean, Judas should have walked up to him, fallen at his feet in confession and repentance, killed the conspiracy. Instead, he betrays him with a false form of affection. That's demonic. That's a clear picture of what it means to be a hypocrite or a two-faced. And amazingly, in Matthew, the Lord's incredible. He exhibits such grace and meekness, which is power under control, with gentleness, to all of this. You know, we would understand if he reacted another way, wouldn't we? What would we do? I mean, Job said in the wake of all of his suffering with his wife, his friends turned on him, and he said, all my intimate friends abhor or hate me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. I mean, that's a horrible feeling. It's immensely painful to be betrayed, I know. Betrayal hurts bad. But Jesus, after this kiss of betrayal, says in Matthew, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. And listen to the reaction of other details of this capture. I'll take you to John chapter 18, starting in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus, listen to this, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's like they were hit with a thunderbolt or passed out. They were that amazed by the power and glory of Christ. 
right in front of them. And so he asked them again, whom do you see? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Let them go. Again, you see Jesus is just displaying his power, authority, and at the same time, his love. He's protecting his own. He's looking out for them like he does for you and me. And so they grabbed him, and they put him under arrest, into custody. And so we move to what I'm calling the complaint here in our text in verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Gee, who could this be? Mark fails to name him. His sword was probably a large knife. They called it a Makaira knife. You could put it almost like the size of a small machete or a, a larger dagger. And with that, he is ready to take on all these soldiers. And he hacks off the ear of one of these guys that we know is going to be named Malchus. And for starters, he probably right-handed tried to go for his head, missed, and hacked off his right ear, which, according to Luke, the Lord put back on miraculously as he's telling them to put their weapons away. Of course, there's no mystery here. This is Peter, the apostle Peter. Now, remember, Mark is Peter's young friend and secretary. He was the human author of this gospel the Lord used, and he's the one that would follow close to Peter like another disciple and acted as his secretary, taking dictation of all that had happened in Peter outside of what Mark had observed himself. Okay? And so if the Lord here, look, if the Lord doesn't intervene here, Peter is probably arrested and maybe gets a cross right next to Jesus for assaulting a Roman. That was a capital crime. So John fills in this other gap for us back in John 18, verse 10. Then, here's the identity, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that the Father has given me? Remember I mentioned recently about the garden prayer just before the betrayal and arrest here that Jesus asked the Father about having this cup removed from him, passed from him if it would be the Father's will. In other words, to spare him. And that is the cup of suffering and judgment that's already being played out here, okay? Yes, there's betrayal, there's injustice, torture, crucifixion. That would be bad enough. But what was the worst, as we talked about when we were here last, is the rejection of the Father and his fellowship while he's dying on the cross forgiving sinners. So we go on. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a, a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So this is the Lord's complaint, okay? This is an indictment against these leaders and the officials in this bogus arrest. He's revealing who they really are. The lack of courage, the cowardice that you see amongst everybody here. Right? The scribes and the Pharisees, they lacked the courage to confront him honestly with real charges, if they had any, in which they could have arrested him before. Jesus is again revealing their conspiracy right then and there. He's saying like, 
do I look like a revolutionary? Do I look like a rebel, like the Hebrew zealots, you know, that the Romans were worried about? Am I armed? Am I dangerous? Am I a common criminal, you know? Or does my ministry look like some kind of rebellion against the Jews or the Romans? It's like, come on, prove it. He tells them, you could have arrested me at any time when I was preaching and teaching during the Passover week at the temple courts. I mean, he was easy to find, right? He had always a crowd around him. They didn't touch him, though. Nothing changed, basically, from what he did and said between Palm Sunday and Thursday night, except when he overturned the tables of the money changers at the temple that Tuesday, which, by the way, might have been grounds for his arrest, but they left him alone when he did that anyway. Why didn't they get him then and there? I'll tell you why. It wasn't God's timing. And these gutless leaders were not going to go near him in public for a fear of the backlash they would get. That's cowardice. God is sovereign in his plan. And so like everything else that happens, it just wasn't time yet. Jesus said the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Which scriptures is he talking about? Well, there are several prophecies from the Old Testament that speak to the Passion Week events, the suffering of the servant, the Savior to come, of the Messiah, and Son of God. But there's none clearer than Isaiah 53. I'll just give you a couple of highlights of that. Even this part is there prophesied by Isaiah. First part of Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men. The beginning of verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. In the middle of verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors or sinners. So it's like a common criminal, right? So we've seen now, okay, this, this complaint. Now let's look at the cowardice here a little bit deeper back in the text starting in verse 50. Very simple. And they all left him and fled. Everyone deserted Jesus. He told them they would when he prophesied that Peter would deny him, remember? He said, the 11 of you, you're going to take off. They were disloyal. Now, did they all defect from the faith like Judas? No. But their faith failed them at that moment. We're going to see that deeper when we get to the uh, next fight of faith with Peter. But the heat was turned up, so they ran. They lacked faith at that moment. They were under pressure. They were scared afraid, being rounded up themselves and arrested, if not worse. So they're thinking, okay, we're guilt by association here. we got to take off. Have you ever experienced anything like that in your lifetime? I don't want to be an alarmist, but something like this is possible and happens. This is a reality for the church in places like Asia, Africa, Afghanistan, there are places where the Lord will test the loyalty of the church on more than one occasion, right? Things might get difficult, and do you know Jesus? Did you say, did you talk about Jesus at the workplace on a break? Did you talk to that student about Jesus even when they voluntarily asked you a question? I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you mean. That's loyalty. That's Judas-like, Peter-like. 
right? It may be loyalty to just even obey his word, as I already mentioned. That's disloyalty. We have to be loyal to his name in proclaiming it to others. You may be in a public situation. Maybe you're in a, a dinner party, a social occasion. Faith comes up. Religion comes up. And it's a perfect opportunity for you to say something about Christ. And it's... Throw away the key. What is that? What happened was these disciples forgot a few things. Their memory failed them as much as their faith. They forgot who they were with and who was allowing himself to be arrested. They forgot Jesus had told them three times he had predicted, just in Mark's gospel, that this would happen. In fact, he told them in chapter 10, verse 33, he put it this way, just before they were to arrive in Jerusalem for this Passover week, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So they forgot that, and they just fled when it did happen. They forgot that the Son of Man and the Son of God could do anything he wanted within the will of his Father. He's the Messiah. Remember, he stilled the storm. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised dead people. Do you think he could have stopped this arrest? At any moment. In fact, right after the moment Peter was ready to go to war, listen to this from Matthew 26. This same account, a little bit further, in verse 52, Jesus said to him, to Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it might be so? See, that's a big insight right there into the nature of the kingdom. Because that passage not only teaches us that revenge and rebellion are not Christian virtues. The Bible says vengeance is of the Lord. But that God is sovereign. Again, he has authority. He rules and reigns over evil. And... His rule and reign is veiled sometimes. It's subtle. You don't always see it, the kingdom of God and his Christ. It does have a visible dimension that's coming. When he returns as a conquering warrior, okay, Jesus is going to be seen as judge, jury, king. He sets up a millennial earthly kingdom. He rules and reigns. Everyone will see the kingdom. But the Jews were looking for the manifestation of that kingdom right then and there. So Jesus is referring to the fact that his, his kingdom is invisible to us now. He's ruling. He's ruling from above at the right hand of the Father. We just can't see it all clearly yet. And he did have legions of angels at his disposal. You might think that's hyperbole, but yeah, literally, that 72,000 angels, that could be a great deal more that he has at his disciple at his at his disposal and there he just wasn't ready to return with them yet and his church to rule and reign remember not yet so this event this apostasy and arrest has to happen because it's all part of God's will and his purposes and then finally let's look at the end of the passage verse 51 this is wild and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. 
and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What is this? What is this two-verse passage doing here? Most people, this is a big-time mystery. It looks like a little more than just a footnote to the event. It almost seems like he doesn't belong. And by the way, only Mark mentions this little addition to the main story of what happened in all the Gospels. So why do we have this little narrative here? And who is this young guy who fled the scene losing his clothes in the process? Well, a lot of commentators think it was John Mark himself, the author of this gospel. <laughs> he's got clothes on. I think it's good. I think he's, it's not him. John Mark with a K. Could be. Not current, but John Mark. It says he was following Jesus like a disciple. Maybe he was just a fan at this point. According to the New American Standard, he was wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. It's like one of those nightshirts you've seen in the old days. That tells me he must have been in bed when this arrest was going down. Have you ever been in a situation, you can relate to this, maybe you're at home, maybe in bed, you're relaxing or sleeping, and you hear this loud noise, or there's some commotion, and it wakes you up out of bed, and you're even tempted to go outside to see what's going on. I think it may have been something like that with this young man, because he's not dressed to go anywhere, obviously, in public. He may have lived in one of the homes on the foot of the Mount of Olives, as you would climb up to go to the garden, and maybe he heard this crowd with Jesus, and then this cohort of soldiers and officials, and there's shields and knives, and there's this commotion, and it could have been, what is going on here? I mean, all kinds of people are abandoning Christ and scattering at this moment. Right? First you had the 11 disciples, other than Judas, that were following Jesus. And then this young man joined the crowd. He didn't like what he saw. And I think he just took off as one of the guards held him. And he left his pajama shirt right there in his hand. His underclothing. Right? Maybe he went to check this out. And he sees swords are out, ears are flying all over the place. It's chaos and it's craziness. So, if someone grabs him, he takes off, leaves his jammies in his hand. Well, loyalty, what it's about. So let me say as I close, that this point is that this young man, like others today, may be failing the test of loyalty to God and to our Lord Jesus Christ. You might not wind up being an apostate or apostatizing, defecting from the faith entirely. But it may look like it to some people if we just cut and run when the kitchen gets a little hot. Eh? In the case of Judas, the consequence of this apostasy, by the way, was fatal. He lost his life for now and forevermore. It says in chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 3, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? 
see to it yourself. Like, too bad, so sad. You're on your own, bub. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. You know, the Bible paints a pretty graphic picture of that suicide in another place. But his demise was not nearly as graphic and painful as the torment Judas is going through right now and forever. He is known in the scriptures as the son of perdition or judgment or hell. And the Apostle John's first letter tells us that he was not an exvangelical, right? He was an apostate. He was never, get this right, Judas was never a born-again believer to begin with. Just like 1 John 2 tells us about the folks in the late first century that are like the folks today where John says, they left us because they were never of us. If they had been with us, they would have remained with us, but they left us so it would be manifest or demonstrated they were never of us. There's no such thing as an ex-Christian. Never make that mistake. There's no ex-Christian. You're not in Christ and then out of Christ. You have professing believers who proved at the end of the day they were never believers to begin with. You understand the difference? That's very important. I'm just comforted by the fact that God is steadfast in his faithfulness. He's loyal. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He's going to pick us up when we fall and he'll help us get back up. Like 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you will help us stay and stand strong in the faith, loyal to you, faithful to you no matter what. We acknowledge, Lord, that you, and praise you and worship you, that you are loyal, but as a result, you demand and expect loyalty from your children. So pray for us, Lord, to help, help us, Holy Spirit, to endure and to persevere in the faith so that we will be proven at the end of the day that we were loyal, we were faithful, and we are in Christ for now and forevermore. And for those, Father God, that do not know Christ, not sure they know Christ, may today be the day that they would turn, make a turn from their old sin and selfishness and turn to you to trust in Jesus alone for salvation, for forgiveness, for peace, for joy, and for faithfulness that will help keep them, Lord, as that great day of your return nears closer and closer, Lord. I pray someone will do that today and hearing this message at whatever point that they do. Help us, Lord, to be strong, to be faithful under pressure, under persecution. For those of us in Christ, in our tests, trials, and tribulations, proving to ourselves and to those in our community that we are loyal, we are faithful. We love you and we want to obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said,
Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 